0: Seeking the Lord's blessing. Let's turn back together to Mark's Gospel and chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verses 35 and 36. Mark 10 and verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, "What do you want me to do for you? You'll notice we come to spend a few moments together on the words of James and John and the Lord's response here that in verse 32 we very much have our context. They were on a road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And here we're moving as the narrative of the scripture takes us towards the great event of the glorification of our Saviour and his crucifixion in Jerusalem and his resurrection and ascension. And of course this is the great climax of the gospel narrative. And this is where we're very much being taken towards as we follow the Lord through the Gospel and as we see there the great focus and the great climax of the Scripture itself, taking us to reflect on Christ on the cross, reflecting on his death, reflecting on his resurrection and ascending to be with his Father in heaven. We see, of course, here... Uh, throughout the scripture that there is this sense of anticipation of these events Uh, and there is very much an anticipation uh, in these chapters that we have and the reference to the journey to Jerusalem is recorded for us and even in the Lord's own words as we'll see together in a moment too we have these references towards his going to Jerusalem Uh, and there is this sense of anticipation and this consideration that his death is imminent, that it is coming. And on the way, there is, of course, a meeting with different people. Uh, We see the rich young man in verses 17 to 31, and Bartimaeus, verses 46 to 52. Different encounters of Jesus on the way, but he is still on the way. Uh, And not only are there encounters, but that there is dialogue, that the disciples themselves are being taught what these things mean being referred here by Jesus about what has been said and explanations of the things that are happening. And into this situation, in verses 35 and onwards, we have here the request of James and John, two of the well-known disciples. And they bring this request or this question. And I suppose for us today, as we gather now, Um, as worship service together, as a preparation to remembering the Lord's death, these elements all come together, uh, that the Lord here is speaking of his death, and we're anticipating it in the Gospel, and we're anticipating remembering it at the Lord's Supper. Uh, But of course the Friday was given to question, uh, and there is a question here in the form of a request. And we see the request with respect to what James and John say. But not only that, but there is reference to the other disciples too, and they're involved in this. There is a request or a question of what James and John and others want to do. And it comes to us directly after verses 32 to 34, where Jesus is speaking of specifics with regards to his death, of the things that are to unfold in Jerusalem, and how the Lord is going to be treated and A recognition there in verse 34, that not only will he be put to death, but he will rise again. That the resurrection is spoken of too. And when we come to examine immediately what follows this in verse 35, is James and John making this petition to Jesus, these two brothers. And what they're asking is that Jesus would do what they ask. They're saying here, what will you do for us? And I want us to think about what they're saying here and to think about what it means to us. And when we come and we look at James and John, we're trying to explore what did this mean to them? What did they expect from Jesus? Or rather, what did they demand from him? Because they're saying in verse 32, do whatever we ask you. And Jesus responds by saying, what do you want me to do for you? There is a specific demand here. And I want us just to reflect on this and to try and understand it for ourselves too. And first of all, to look at the demand. The demand that has been made by the disciples. The two disciples mentioned here, verse 35, the sons of Sebedee. These two men we're so familiar with in the gospel narrative. These two brothers who worked with their father. Just ordinary fishermen. Who were going about their daily business. And Jesus told them to follow him. And they left the fishing, they left the nets behind. And they followed Jesus. And here they are, somewhere in the region of three years later. And things are now coming towards their climax. And there is this anticipation that this is coming to his end. And the anticipation really is communicated through the words of Jesus himself. You'll notice how many times he refers to his death. In chapter 8, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and rise rise again on the third day. In chapter 9, again, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, After three days, he will rise. And again, we've seen this already in chapter 10, in verse 33, that he is going to be put to death, condemned, put to death, and then he will rise. They will do these things. They will reject him. They will put him to death. And into this atmosphere, the disciples see that this is an opportune time to make this request. And so for us, it seems... A rather bizarre time to make such a request. But for them, they think this is the time and the occasion where they can bring this request to Jesus. Where they can communicate what they want and what they desire. And there is a certain degree of boldness about this. It's very bold, in fact. To be able to say what they're saying. To be able to come to Jesus as he's talking about his rejection and the shameful way he is going to be treated And to be able to say then, do what we ask you to do. Do it for us. Do what we want you to do. And they're trying to manipulate the situation and demand of Jesus, imposing their own expectations on him, their expectations for themselves and for their life and for how it's going to be and how their discipleship is going to be shaped and I feel that it's very easy for us to be critical of James and John and in a moment we'll try and see that all the disciples are involved in this but don't we do the same thing isn't it true that we follow the same attitude and we make the same kind of requests when we pray what do we do And I know we all feel terribly insufficient with regards to our prayer life. But the disciples did too. And they said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he taught them how to pray. He taught them the Lord's Prayer. How many of us pray like the Lord's Prayer? Full of praise. And the glory of God comes first. And then the petitions come towards the end. Yet the reality is, when we pray, we're pouring forth our petitions, our desires. We're telling the Lord how we want it to be, what we want to change, how we want life to be better and easier. How we're engaging in this way, imposing our expectations of life upon God and on our spiritual journey. And that is a dangerous thing for us to do because it threatens our joy. Because no doubt when we're placing our will over God's will, we will end up being disappointed. When life doesn't work out the way we expected or hoped or even prayed for. Because we've approached it in the wrong way. We've come in the same way as James and John. And we said, do for us what we ask from you. And they're placing their demands. And we see... Even here, there is, in some respects, a certain context that allows them to speak in this way. Jesus is dealing in verses 17 to 31 with a man we call the rich young ruler. And in verse 21, Jesus looked at this man and he loved him and he said to him, You lack one thing, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. And the man goes away, disheartened. And yet the disciples respond to this. In verse 28, Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. And James and John feel the same way as Peter. They've left everything behind. A good living with their father, working and fishing, and going about their daily business. They've left all of this. There was a man, this rich young ruler, who refused to leave these things behind, but they didn't. And so they're anticipating here That they've made sacrifices. And surely there is a reward. And what's more, in verse 29, Jesus responds and he says, I say to you, no one who has left house, or brother, sister, mother, father, children, lands for my sake, for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold. That there is this reward. And so this is facilitating the anticipation of James and John and their request. And they're wondering to themselves, What are we going to get? What are we going to get out of this? Peter has already spoken in these ways. In verse 28, we've left everything. And we've followed you. We've committed ourselves to you. So this is part of what they see as their license. To approach the Lord in this way. And in some respects, we have to credit them for their faith. Because their request really is in verse 37. Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left hand, in your glory. They believe in the kingship of Jesus. They believe in this. And not only this, but they've been listening. Listening to the things that Jesus has said. Listening to the promise that there are thrones. In Matthew 19 verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious thrones, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And James and John have heard this. And they think, we want these thrones. And we want the place of preeminence, the right hand and the left. We want to be right next to you. We've laid hold of these things. And maybe to a point too, where later on in the upper room, where Jesus will say to them in John 15, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And we're encouraged in many ways to be bold in our prayer life. And here are these men asking for what they wish. But that of course fails to appreciate the context and the conditions that, that include included in prayer even in John 15 if we had time to examine that even in in of course our catechism answers the question what is prayer And, and brings before us the true important things the offering up of our desires and the things agreeable to his will that there needs to be this harmony there and what we have too is the reality that they're failing to grasp the nature of this kingdom and the nature of discipleship itself. What it's all about to follow Jesus. Because this is the great demand in verse 21. You sell everything, come, follow me. Follow me. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're following Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. We've left everything to follow him, to be his disciple, to engage in this way. And the reality is that the overwhelming context that we have in everything Jesus is teaching here is that he is speaking about his suffering. He is speaking about his death. He is speaking about his humiliation. And here they come right in the midst of this and they say, Give us what we want. Do what we demand from you. They're asking, what's in this for us? And they're making these demands upon God and upon the Lord. And what this tells us is that they've reduced their view of their discipleship and Christianity. And they're thinking in worldly and carnal terms. That they're not thinking of the spiritual realities of the kingdom But they're thinking of comfort. They're thinking of position. They're thinking of authority. They're thinking in verse 37. What it's going to be like to sit on thrones. What it's going to be like to be there. In this place. And all they want in the midst of it all. Is just that Jesus would acquiesce with everything they demand. And give them what they want. And this isn't far away from how we think and feel. We want the Lord to give us what we want and for them this is something truly amazing these ordinary common men and they want thrones these fishermen want to be like kings they want to sit on the thrones and they're qualified themselves to be there they've qualified themselves for this honor they've followed jesus they've left everything In fact, if we would look together, in John chapter 19, we learn that their mother and Jesus' mother are related. In John 19, verse 25, and in fact, their mother is actually engaged and involved in this request. If you see in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 20 and 21, that, that there we have that she's involved in this request too. They bring her in to put pressure on Jesus to respond to this. And another man who was related to Jesus, John the Baptist, he was spoken of in such glowing terms, this unique man who excelled all other men. And they think to themselves, this is our opportunity to get our status, to get our position, to achieve greatness. What they wanted They longed for greatness and it's nearly here. The kingdom is to come. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And they're expecting thrones. They're expecting the son of David to ascend his throne. And they want to be there. They want to satisfy all the demands of self. What we have, of course, as we move on in verse 41... The ten heard it and they were indignant. And what really, what we have here is that there is a sense of rank or a sense of preference. And when you want something to place yourself in a greater rank than somebody else, it's to their detriment. That's why the commandment is that we ought not to covet because we're taking something from somebody else. And this is what's happening here. They want to be promoted above others. And the response of the others in verse 41 is anger. They're indignant. They're angry with James and John. Not because they feel that this is an unjust request. But because this is exactly what they want. They want the same thing. They want these things For themselves. In the chapter previous to this, chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Verse 34 of chapter 9, they kept silent, for on the way they argued with one another. Who was the greatest? They argued. Who was the greatest? They desire greatness. And what they're looking for. Is something that is carnal and worldly. They're jostling for position amongst themselves. Jesus rebukes them in verse forty two. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You're not to be like this. You're not to adopt this carnal jostling for position, this worldly desire. This desire that you will have the first place, that you'll be better than your brother, that you will have this sense of comfort and prestige and authority, that you will live like kings and others subservient to you. This is the demands of the disciples. But what Jesus does is he responds to this with the demands of discipleship. The demands of discipleship. Because there is a deeper question here a question of what discipleship really is, what it really means to follow Jesus, what kind of kingdom is this. And Jesus here is teaching them these things so they'll understand that it's not about serving self-interest. And so he speaks to them here. And he is responding to their request and ensuring even here at this late stage That they understand and comprehend what it means to follow him. Because Jesus is concerned with us. To change us. That the gospel transforms us. Not just once, but it keeps transforming us. We're different people. We're new, new creatures in Christ. We are transformed by the renewal of our minds. God is shaping and molding us like clay. Shaping us in the midst of all our experiences. It's not our circumstances that the Lord's trying to change. It's us. Through the transforming power of the gospel. The power of the new life. The power of the new way of living. The new way of thinking. The new way of acting. The power of the gospel that is new in us. And here they are in the midst of this, and they are saying, give us thrones. And what he said is, follow me. Where's his throne? We call ourselves Christians. But to say that we're Christians is to say that we're Christ ones. Are we really like Christ? The demand is placed on him. But it's us who the demand is upon Jesus is placing a demand on them. It's not about what we're demanding from him, but about what he is demanding from us. Discipleship is different. He is telling them this again and again in verses 42 and 43. It shall not be so among you. It's going to be different. In verse 44, this is what it's like. Whoever is going to be first among you is going to be slave. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And again in verse 31, he says there, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They're talking about preeminence and jostling for position. And he says, this is what it's like to have first place in the kingdom. You serve. You take the last place. You're not like the world. You're different. It's a different kind of following the Lord, a different kind of preeminence. In verse 42 he's saying, you're not going to be like the Gentiles, the worldly lording over it, but to have this great place in the kingdom is to serve, not to be a tyrant. It shall not so be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is true greatness. And this is what the Lord is calling each and every one of us to. He calls you to true greatness. Not the position and place of this world. Not in everything it's got to offer you. Not in its thrones and its money and its ambition and position. But in something else. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him. What does that mean? What does it mean to you and me? It means, first of all, that we need to have the right view of the kingdom. It is not a worldly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And to follow Jesus is to give ourselves to his demands. To be what he wants us to be. The kind of people he wants us to be. To do the kind of things he asks us to do. James and John have come with the wrong attitude. Asking him to do what they want to do, to be at their bidding. But discipleship is different to this. It's completely different. And this is the way Jesus is responding to them. And he's asking them to truly follow him. A different kind of discipleship. True greatness. In verse 38, do you know what you're asking? And then he explains, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And even there, it's full of misconceptions and misunderstanding. They're so bold. They think they can do this. You know what he's talking about when he's speaking about the cup and baptism. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering and they're saying, we can do this. And he responds and says in verse 39, Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink the baptism which will I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will suffer. And to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to suffer. This is what true greatness demands from us. Discipleship demands absolutely everything from you. It demands that you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow Jesus. It demands that you give Him absolutely everything. And your calling is you're disengaging with this world, you're putting sin to death, you're engaging with something that is far different. They think they've qualified themselves. And we're just like them. But the reality is, more is demanded. In John chapter 15, he tells them that the world is going to hate them. Because it hated him. And you're in an ever-increasing hostile environment to the gospel. The world is hating you more and more every day. And you're to come and to realize this is a badge of honor. Because this is what Jesus is, embracing, is calling us to embrace. To embrace our discipleship. To embrace our calling. To embrace our suffering. Paul says in Philippians 3 that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And might share in his suffering becoming like him in his death. Paul says I want to be like him. I want to be Christ like I want to be his disciple and I'll embrace the suffering that brings this. In Acts we're told that it is through great tribulation we enter into the kingdom. James encourages us in our suffering. He says, count it joy when you meet with trials. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, that you might rejoice in your suffering. And whatever you're going through now, Christian. In the difficulties and tension that you're facing. And how you're suffering. You rejoice in your suffering. Because God is at work. You are becoming more and more like him. You are being shaped in this way. Embrace your calling. Reject this world. And follow this different path. This different way. Embrace it and rejoice in it. Because the greatest temptation of all is to reject suffering. To run away from it. To find a different path. And it was there for Jesus. And Peter took him aside and told him to stop talking about these things. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. He didn't want to hear this. For the joy that was set before him He endured the cross. His face was set to Jerusalem. This is where he was going. To embrace his suffering. To redeem a people for himself. And he calls you and me to follow him. To follow him. And to fulfill true greatness. Verse 43. Whoever will be great among you. Must be your servant. And he's dealing with the issue. Of our pride. Verse 39. We are able. Are you really? We say these things in boldness. Thinking we're strong and powerful. And in just a few moments. We're running away with them. Running away from Jesus. In the midst of his trial and suffering. And so. This is the very problem, our pride, standing in the way of our fulfilling through greatness. It's what causes us to fall like they did and to fail. And at the cross, Jesus is dealing with everything, even our carnal attitudes and the disciples. Are humbled. And it doesn't, it becomes no more about self promotion. They're seeking through greatness in humility and through greatness in service also, where they're called to serve. And this again is the spiritual nature of the kingdom, the great reversal of the standards of this world. It's not about sitting enthroned and exalted. It's about taking the towel. Washing your friends' feet. It's about following the example of Jesus. It's about abasing yourself. Preferring others. It's about following Jesus. Who sacrificed for the interests of others. Who poured himself out in love. Who tells us in verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we're called to prefer the interests of others. To make sacrifices for one another. To love each other, to prefer each other, to pour ourselves out. And the Bible teaches us that this is the place to do it. The church. And the opportunity. You see, Jesus is calling you and me to more, to give and to give and to give, to serve, to pour ourselves out. Paul says, if I don't have love, I am nothing. Not I have nothing, I am nothing. Nothing. Jesus gives the great example when he washes their feet and he says, I have given you this example. He is calling you and me to true greatness. To serve. Verse 44 Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The slave is owned and controlled. He has a master, he does what he's told. He is obedient. This is what Jesus is calling us to be and it runs contrary to everything we've ever imagined in our own natural carnal minds. And it's greater and better because Jesus is calling us to be like him and not the world and to find true greatness. And James and John learned it. James was beheaded early in the book of Acts. And we leave John in exile on the island of Patmos. All for the testimony of their Saviour. To serve the Lord and his people. To give themselves humbly and fully to the service of the Lord. Jesus is demanding everything from us. Don't hold anything back. Deny yourself. Bear your cross. Have a discipleship that's obedient. And reflect on who he is. And the kingdom he's called you to. Reflect on it. And remember that he died for your sins. This is what he did for you. What will you do for him? Will you follow him? Will you follow him? Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word with all its demands. Grant to us, Lord, we pray your grace, for we bring before you our own admittance of our weakness. Forgive us, Lord, our sins, and all we ask is in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final item of praise is in Psalm 131, on page 422. Psalm 131, and we're singing the whole psalm, verses 1 to 3. My heart not, sorry, this isn't a Scottish saucer, Psalm 131. My heart not haughty is, O Lord, mine eyes not lofty be, nor do I deal in matters great or things too high for me. I surely have myself behaved with quiet spirit and mild, as a child of mother Wind, my soul is like a wind child. Upon the Lord let all the hope of Israel rely, even from the time that present is, unto eternity. This is a psalm, and the psalmist is communicating his own spirit of humility. We're singing the whole psalm. We're standing to sing to the praise of God.
1: My heart.